Hi, I'm Simon Napier-Bell. I've been a music manager for one hell of a long time now, about 50 years. I also write books and I make films. And I think I'm here today because I made a film called The Real George Michael, which uh, these guys want to talk to me about. And welcome to the music. Where, now, where are you? You're you're not in North America or Europe, are you? No, I'm in Thailand. Ah, is that home now for you? Yeah, I've been. It's been home for about twenty years. I mean, oh, wow. home is home is usually an airplane or an airport. But um, <laughs> when I finished with that, this is where I come back to. This is where you come. Nice. Yep. Perfect. Well, listen. Thank you so much for spending a few minutes with us today. I really appreciate it. My my pleasure. Absolutely. And and first off. Uh, Congrats on, on the documentary. It was uh, uh, very informative. Some things that I, I did not know uh, are in there and a, a lot of things to, you know, sort of make you sit back and think about uh, George Michael, uh, the person, uh, the singer, the activist. Um, but yeah, a very, a very good doc. Thank you for putting that together. Thank you. Well, yeah. I mean, there were things in there I didn't know before I met it too, which is which is one of the reasons I wanted to make it to see what I could learn. What was what what like what what surprised you? What did you learn from this? Well, you know, I, I managed him, and I used to go to the recording yeah. studio with him, but I I never knew that he didn't write his lyrics down. I, mean, I just didn't notice it. And uh, but every producer we talked to said totally amazing. He never wrote lyrics down. He kept them in his head. I'm sure oh. he wrote them. Before he got to, the, to them, it appeared he made them up as he as he stood in front of the microphone. I'm sure he had them written out in his head. You see what mm -hmm. I mean? But he never wrote things down on paper. So, you know, if if you were going shopping tomorrow for a week shopping and you didn't write a list out, you'd forget a few things. If you're singing a song and you haven't yet decided quite which lyrics to use, and you've written ten or twelve alternatives to every line, and it's a three minute song, and you don't write a single thing down, it's quite amazing. Um, and very often he was just making lyrics up too, just throwing them into the microphone, thinking, oh, that works, that doesn't work. Um, I didn't know that. They were all amazed by it, but so was I. That's, 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 to me, that's really interesting because I think of, and again, I was a musician myself personally, sort of late 80s through the mid 90s. Um, you know, to me, Freedom 90 was a huge f you to many people and so so much more than that and so what i find interesting based on that is like to me that seemed like such a organized thought well i'm song. sure there were there were organized thoughts it's just yeah. that he had a brain in which he could write something down put it in the filing cabinet and then just access that and mm. that is extraordinary i wouldn't trust my yeah. brain to do that I'm sure it's all in there, but you don't. It doesn't come out just like that, you know. Um, yeah, that song was was extraordinary because it was the it was the moment when he fought with the record company and his whole personality changed. He had this row with the record company. He, by the end of Faith, he was really fed up with being too famous and too recognized. And he said, "I'm just not going to make another video. I don't, I want to be able to walk out the street and just go for a walk, you know." Mm -hmm. uh, well, it's never going to happen again. That was an idle <laughs> hope, mm -hmm. but. Um, and then he, he came up with this idea for 
Freedom, the video, where he wouldn't actually be in it singing, but the models would sing it and he'd do the directs yes. behind the camera. And the record company hated it, said, you can't do that, you've got to be in the video. And I thought about it later, I thought, it, it's George's fault. Because if he'd gone to the record company, didn't say, I don't want to be in the video. If, if he said, I've got this brilliant idea for a video, I'm going to be a film director when we get the model, they'd all say, oh, what an amazing idea. It was, it was the way he approached it, you know, very confrontational. Uh -huh. But at that moment, George needed to be confrontational. He wanted to say F you to the record company, to the whole record industry, the way it worked. And that really changed him. I mean, immediately after that, he did that tour um, where he sang other people's songs. I forgot the name mm. of the tour now. But he, he did Rock in Rio. And if you look at that, that I think it's the best concert he ever did. Mm. Such bravura, such such confidence, such so relaxed and happy. And singing other people's songs. So he wasn't involved in his own angst. He was just singing the songs he loved. So that yeah. freedom was, was a huge moment in his life. It gave yeah. him freedom. But it was brilliant. It was brilliant. And, and to me, using the using the models, mm. I don't know. I just like it just just it was just so brilliant to what do you mean? He was saying so many things there, wasn't he? Yeah. He was he was coming out of the closet, so he burnt a leather yeah, jacket yeah. in the closet. That's that's pretty yeah. good. That's then right. using the using the models, use, singing his voice was perhaps also saying, you know, um, don't be so gender specific. Here's yeah. my words, they're singing yeah. it. There was a lot of undertone in there. Not everyone picked up on all the different levels. So it was just certainly all there. As a musician, that was brilliant. It's one of my my favorite songs of all time. So I have goosebumps. So wow! Yeah. But but remember, it wasn't a hit in America. It wasn't a hit. You know? yeah. It was really, this is a really strange thing. We've, we've jumped forwards through his story, but Faith, which had five number ones in America, was not a hit album in the UK. Mm -hmm. And oh. the UK, the British people have an extraordinary knack of seeing beyond the show business image. And they looked at Faith and they said, we always thought he was gay when he was in Wham. Why didn't he come out when he went solo? He's gone the other way. He's gone even straighter, more butcher, the leather jacket. And British people sort of looked at that and thought, that's not, that's not the real George Michael. Mm -hmm. when, when he did Freedom, they all said, yeah, welcome. Yes, we, we like a person who's <laughs> real. And so from then on, he got hits in Great Britain. So it was really a switch in every way. And, and, you, see, and you see that in, the, in the, the doc, too, in terms of the, you know, the success that he continued to have, aside from a couple of things, were very much UK and European-centric versus... You know, not as much success in the US after that. I mean, I wouldn't say England is any or UK is any easier than America to be a star. You you still can't walk down the street and nobody recognizes you. But there's an easier, there's there's there's, a, there's less of a, an adulation feel. There's more of a how nice of you to be a star and still walk down the street, but can I bother you anyway and get your autograph and have a <laughs> selfie? Whereas America's, oh my God, it's George Michael. And and I think it was that which really pissed him off. He, you know, because that attracts 10 more stars, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like throwing the meat to the seagulls and they core and all the others come, you know. Um, so he was ha he was happier at being in the UK. But he did, he wanted success in America. I mean, he did regret losing it. He had, uh, uh, he was a multi-layered person. He had enormous desire for success. And um, you know, he, 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 later he sued Sony and really it was about the fact that yeah. they paid Michael Jackson a higher royalty than him you know he, he said all sorts of other things why he was suing them but he was pissed off you know they had two other artists who got more royalties than him why he wanted the same royalties 
you know, there was there was that sort of slight pettiness in him as well. We've all got all sorts of different levels in us, you know. Mm. And, and what I liked about him was he recognised himself. He understood himself. He knew, you know, he knew who he was, and uh, he admitted that he was doing it for that reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, he had no qualms about saying, "Yes, I know I'm a popular. Yes, I know I'm rich, but I'm doing this anyways." You know, yeah. I'm, I'm going to sue sue them for for more money, which was his eventual. Uh, well, I mean, it, it, to it, lose it, that case against in, in that particular case, he was wrong. The the legal basis on which he took the case, he was wrong. I mean, uh, he signed that contract. He'd reaffirmed the contract three or four. He'd renegotiated the contract three or four times. You can't go back and say the original contract was terrible when you, they said, "Well, why did you renegotiate it and resign to a better deal?" He didn't really sue them about. It. He sued them for two reasons. One, he was pissed off that they got more royalties than him. Uh, three reasons. The second, he was angry. You know, he, his boyfriend had died. When when people you love die, the first emotion is anger. Always, people get very angry when somebody they love dies. So he was angry. And thirdly, he'd heard that uh, a major executive at Sony had called him an English fag. Yeah. And these record contracts hold you for 10 or 15 years. They hold you to your entire life to a record company. It's not like they're a period and you can go somewhere else. Record contracts are pernicious things, and they hold you virtually to your professional life. And he thought, why, why should it be fair that I'm tied to a company where the head of the company can say bad things about me and I can't walk out? I mean, it's... You know, in a, that's what angered him first, tied to the anger of someone's mm, death. Yeah. And then the royalties, the three things which had pissed him off. But none of them were a legal base for breaking the contract, unfortunately. Right. Absolutely. Um, why, Simon, I wanted to ask you this. Why this documentary at this point in time? Well, it wasn't really this point in time. It was 2019 that I filmed it all. Okay. And just as we filmed it all, we got covid and yeah. all the post-production houses closed down. And bit by bit, even during COVID, they started opening. But 2020, we were ready to start editing, and we couldn't. And so we virtually got postponed for a year then. And we got into it in 2021. And then it was sort of, it took about a year to finish it. So it really was due out about a year ago. Then we had to sort out the music rights, which we hadn't. It always takes a long time. You have to deal with your estate oh, and sort right. things out. And normally, you start doing that when the film's, uh, I mean, we'd wasted two years before we started that, too. So it really was two years ago. But you could have asked the same question two years ago. Why then? Yeah. And the reason was I'd seen a lot of documentaries about George. And they were all very brash, vulgar. Uh, I don't want to be anti-American, but, but very in the tradition yeah. of American yeah. documentaries. You want, uh, then George did this, and then George, then George thought, how do they know what George thought? You know, it's, it's those commentaries I hated. And yeah. I thought, let's just get a lot of people who knew him and loved him and worked with him, and maybe even didn't like him. That didn't worry me. I just wanted people who knew him well and let them talk. And then string that together without any commentary at all, without any comment, the comments are theirs, and they flow together. So there's 90 minutes there without any, uh, without any comment from me, uh, who managed yeah. him and knew him, uh, and was the director. And so I was learning from it, which is what I wanted to do, uh, just like everybody else learned from it. It's it's interesting because it reminds me of it, the production. Reminded me of one of my favorite documentaries. I'm a huge F1 fan of the Senna doc because it's yep. really just people like it's it's first person account. It's yep. not, as you said, the U.S. like 
and then George went off to blah blah blah. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah well done for that. <laughs> well, it's unfair to throw it to America because probably English British documentaries have done the same way. But it, it's usually that. No, but I think what it, what it did, what what I didn't like is the the American ones always have that very upbeat voice as the commentator, you know, uh, who thinks he's selling you know selling some sort of product and. Um, at least the British ones usually have some dour commentator who bores you to death. <laughs> if if um, if you could have asked George a question and included his answer in this documentary, what would you have wanted to ask him? Wow. Well, in a way, we sort of did because although all those people talk, there's an enormous amount mm. of archive material, and there's there's over twenty minutes of George talking in the film, which is more than anyone else. No one else in that film talks as much as George does. So, in many ways, he's answered so many of the questions. But um, you know, he, he's an artist, and artists are, are compulsive. They're propelled by something inside, usually, a, you know, a very serious. Uh, usually something happened in childhood, a lack of love at the moment mm. it was needed from someone it was needed by. They usually have a major source of angst inside them, and they don't always know what drives them. I mean, they usually end up in, uh, you know, with a psychologist, which George did too. Um, they, they're they not sure of all the answers. That's every time they create a work of art, they're looking for an answer. You know, there was somebody in the film, he's an art critic, and he said George is solo songs reminded me of Rembrandt's self-portraits. Mm -hmm. Rembrandt used to paint a self-portrait and then sit and look at it and think, now, who am I? Uh, and I think George did the same. And I remember reading once when Elton was in a bad stage of his life, uh, people said he'd go to his room and he'd spend all night listening to his old records. It's Artists are usually trying to find out who they are. And each piece of art or each song is another way of looking into themselves trying to find a sort of resolution or a contented way to live. So I don't know if there's any question I'd ask George because I don't think we get anything more than, I mean, I've asked them. They're in, they're in the film and he answers them. And sometimes when you're an artist, because you're on a talk program and you get used to how to do it and you know how entertainment business works, you always answer questions. You always have an answer. That's what you have to do. But very often the honest answer would be, I really don't know. I don't know why mm. I do it. I don't know why I'm like this. I don't. Artists usually learn not to say that. People don't want that answer. But that's probably the most truthful answer. There were there was a few wonderful questions in the film. There's that Australian interviewer, a really vile man, I thought. I hope he's watching. Um, <laughs> who first questioned the interview, George, are you gay? Mm. And George, that was halfway through the Faith Tour, and George, George was already out to a lot of his friends. Yeah. And he just said, no, I'm not. Yeah. And you could see George biting his tongue and thinking, oh, flip, I should have said yes. That was the moment when he said, yeah, so what? It would have been fantastic. It wouldn't have killed the tour. He'd already sold half, he's done half the tour. He'd sold the tickets for the rest. Um. It would have almost slapped that journalist in his face, but he did what he'd le learned to do. He said no, and then he had to justify it, and and that you know it all slipped back five more years before he could actually come out and find a way yeah. of saying it. But it's a wonderful thing because you can see in George's face the disappointment at himself. Oh God, I said the wrong answer, mm. and then he had to cover it all up. Yeah, mm. and you can you can see. I mean, in the documentary, it's very clear that. 
he was really good with the media. Like, yeah. Like he, he was, he was polished. He all, he pretty much always had the right answer. Cheeky. Sure. But there was it, it like, it, it's he, an he art. was slick. He was slick. Yeah. It's an art. And, and part of the art is covering things up. And of course, George's, George's ambition in life, if you like, was, was to be open. He always wanted to be honest and frank and open. This is who I am. You know, it's extraordinary when he was with Kenny, his, his boyfriend of 12 years, how he would sometimes Kenny would be somewhere around at the interview and he said, oh, I'm going home. And he'd shout out to George, who was actually being filmed live in an interview. Going home now, darling. And George said, yeah, bye-bye. Blow him a kiss, just like any normal couple. It, it was wonderfully open and free. And that's how he liked to be. But the problem is, it goes back to what I just said. The, the media demand an answer. And in a way, giving an answer at all is often dishonest because you don't really have an answer. You know, they say, what were you trying to... What were you trying to, you know, establish with the songs of this album? And they want an answer, so you find the one. But the reality is, I just wanted to write some songs and go on investigating myself. <laughs> sure. It's a bit boring. <laughs> they don't want to hear that. We we talked a bit already about his uh, his battle with Sony. Um, you correct me if I'm wrong, but you, did you helped him get out of that? Intervision contract or helped them renegotiate? I got him out of that one. Yeah. Tell, tell us about that. And, and as well, has anything changed in, in the business? <laughs> well, not much. No. I mean, you know, you stream instead of selling vinyl, but you have, you have artists, you have an audience, and you have the corporate world which monetizes the artist and they find a way of monetizing, you know, if, if it's live work or streaming. Um, and that hasn't changed since the 1800s. I mean, then it was sheet music, not records. Now it's streaming, not records. Um, not, no, not, not much changes. And, um, and the artist always starts off saying, all I want is, is fame and it'd be nice for a little bit of money to go with it. And then as they get the fame and the success, they say, well, it'd be nice for a bit more money. I mean, it's, you know, we all do that. And um, the audience just want access to the artists. And, and that includes not just the music, but, you know, getting to know them, who they are. They want to watch and follow their life, admire them. I mean, everyone, everyone, every fan sees the artists in a different way. You know, somebody in the film says it, the artists are like those ink block tests that psychiatrists give you. Um, oh, everyone, yes. sees, everyone sees them a different way, and everyone sees the artists a different way. They, they see parts of themselves in the artists. So no, none of that has changed. And... Um, when George signed that contract with Intervision Records, it was a terrible contract. I mean, it, it, um, at that moment in UK, 90% of all record sales were on long, they were on um, colored vinyl, which were 12 inch 78 RPM, no, 45 RPM, mm -hmm. 12 inch records on, which were printed on vinyl with pictures and cartoons um, and extended versions. So you'd get a dance song, which is three minutes long, you'd extend it to five minutes, put it on color vinyl. They sold millions. And in that contract, the original contract Wham signed, it said no royalties would be paid on color vinyl. Not for any reason except to avoid paying money, you know. Yeah. And it slipped slipped wow. by. Two young kids of 18 signed the contract. Oh, we've got a record kind of contract. How exciting. And then all the record company did was sold color vinyl. We didn't sell anything else. You know, so there's millions of pounds going through their accounts and George and Andrew getting nothing. 
but it was a valid contract. I mean, it wasn't as if they hadn't signed it and they had had advice and all the things you're meant to do. Um, so we just had to find a way of getting out of it. So, yeah, that was something I guided them through. Wow. <clears throat> and you, you also, they're famously the first Western band to play in China. Uh, that was breaking America. <laughs> that, I mean, that I mean, it could have been the Rolling Stones. It could I could have been like a a, a slew of other bands, but it's wham. Uh, they didn't need. They didn't need what we needed. The first time I sat down to dinner with George and Andrew, yeah, he fixed me with a steely eye and he said, "You've got one year to make us the biggest group in the world." And I just laughed. I said, "The biggest group in the world has to be the biggest group in America. It's the sixty percent of the world market." And no one's ever done it. The Beatles took four years, for Christ's sake. It's never been done in a year. America doesn't have a national press. It has time difference, which makes national TV different, difficult. You have to go there and play venues and go to tour again. They get bigger each time. It takes three or four years at the quickest. And he said, you've got a year. Wow. So my partner jokingly said, oh, maybe we can make you the first ever Western group to play in China. Then you'll be on the news every day for, for a while. And George said, yeah, I like that. Go and do that. And um, I love Asia, so I thought, you know, it's my, my pass <laughs> to spending half the next year in Asia. So um, I went off to China and um, found myself in the Holiday Inn in Beijing without a proper visa because um, foreigners couldn't go to China without an official invitation from the government. And I bypassed that by sneaking in through uh, with a friend I knew in Hong Kong who'd got me over the border. So I was sitting here unofficially in a hotel in Beijing with no right to be there. And who could say yes to a Western pop group? You know, pop culture is the most subversive thing there is in society. Who is going to say yes? One person, Deng Xiaoping, the president of China, probably the second or third most powerful person in the world. And here I was in the Holiday Inn on a rainy evening in Beijing. <laughs> yeah, how can I speak to Deng Xiaoping and persuade him to do this? Wow. <laughs> so the next 18 months was doing that, slowly getting to meet mm -hmm. him or getting to put the project to it and have him say yes. And, and I did it by getting to meet ministers by devious means and then buying them wonderful lunches, which they couldn't resist, and then asking them to invite their friends. And each month I went back, I, I, the pile got bigger. I started off with one minister and I got a second and a third. And eventually there were seven or eight cabinet ministers coming to lunches every time I was there. And finally, I found the right one to talk to. It took 18 months, not, not a year. But 18 months after we had that meeting with George said one year, we played China. And on that week, ABS, CBS, NBC, TV in America had them on 24-7, every hour on the hour. And by the end of that week, they were the biggest group in America. We played a stadium tour just six weeks later. Wow. So 18, 18 months, not a year, but not Yeah, yeah. That, that is very good. The documentary is The Real Georgia Michael portrait of an artist our guest has been simon napier bell um simon I, I i need to ask you this question before we wrap it up uh you famously also managed sinead o'connor mm -hmm. uh, who recently passed um your mm -hmm. thoughts on this i don't know reluctant superstar yeah, I mean, she was a, a perfect example of an artist, just as George was. I mean, they suffered yeah. some terrible lack of love in their childhood. They're searching for it all their lives. They resent the industry. 
um, which gives it to them. Mm. And um, so they're fighting with themselves and with an industry which they also worship because the industry is the one place which is going to, you know, give them to an audience which will give them that love. Complex people, artists are, and uh, Sinead was even more complex than normal. And um, she was fantastic, wonderful person. But, you know, she was very difficult and, and very mm. bipolar and up and down. And, um, you know, she, she was totally mistrustful of people. She'd been abused really badly, physically kicked and abused by her mother when she was young, lost her trust in people after several bad relationships and sort of resorted to put her faith in ideas, which is why she changed her religion four or five times. It's like changing yeah. her. Husbands, you change religion. You tried to find a new idea. <laughs> mm. At least they didn't kick you. Um, and and strange enough, you know, she eventually found Islam, which I'm no fan of. But you know, Islam got her singing again. I mean, Islam did what no medicine. You know, she was in and out of mental homes for two years after I stopped managing her, and nothing the doctors could do could bring her back to any sort of normal life and get her singing again. And Islam did. So you know, it, it was the medicine which worked for her. Wow. How 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 would you you know we don't sometimes you don't get to choose our story but you know if you know a, a, as a manager if you could figure out a way on how George Michael and Shinido Condor were to be remembered obviously you've made this documentary about George but you know if you could manage their legacy how how would you approach that uh well I guess the way they would like to be remembered, George always talked about not caring about being an artist, caring about being a songwriter. He wanted to be remembered for songs. That's tricky because none of his songs have transcended himself. I mean, if you listen to Careless Whisper or, or Last Christmas, which is such a masterpiece, uh, or all the later songs, none of them really work without him. You know, you, you, you're feeling him as you hear the song. So mm -hmm. he is being remembered for what he wanted as a great songwriter, but they are pretty necessarily sung by him. I've never heard a, a, a George Michael song as good as when he sings it, or anywhere near as good. And mm -hmm. although he sang other people's songs so well, like Rufus yes. Wainwright going to a town, and you know so well that you thought they were George Michael's songs. So he's he's been re being remembered two thirds of what he wanted, plus being a fantastic gay activist. And, and a very generous man who gave away a lot of money. But he, he wouldn't want to be remembered for that. It was songwriting. Yeah. Sinead, I think, would rather be remembered as someone who actively worked um, to right the wrongs of, of Ireland, which happened in Ireland. And that was her major passion, wasn't herself. It was, you know, she transferred all her own pain to Ireland. So her pain became Ireland's pain or vice versa. Mm. And I think... You know, if she was remembered, she won't be for that. But if she was remembered as being someone who really helped Ireland sort of get freedom from its agonies of the past, I think that's what she'd like. But it's a vain hope because it sort of has got that, but it didn't come through quite the, the ways that she thought it would. Yeah. Um, I I think other than that, she'd like to be remembered as as somebody who people loved and liked because she didn't get that when she was a child. Yeah. It was it yeah. was it was it was amazing. I didn't know um, how people reacted to her until she passed, and my family WhatsApp chat group just exploded uh, with people with like fond memories of her and her music. And you know, it, it, isn't it wonderful? You know, a lot of yeah. people said, "Oh, 
Uh, why couldn't they be like that? She was alive. Well, it is difficult. Mm. The music industry is an industry, and it is there to sell music and monetize it. Yeah. And for some years, she hadn't made money, hadn't made music, which could be monetized, and the industry does drop you. I mean, it's it's not it's not cynical, and it's not um, it's not unfriendly. It's just there to to sell music, and if yeah. you don't make music which can be sold, you you get left out, and. You saw when she died that she really was loved. And, yeah. of course, many things happened. Since she tore the picture up of the Pope in Saturday Night Live, she's been proved pretty well right that it's a good, <laughs> the right thing to do. And apart mm. from that, the furore over it, she tore a picture up, for Christ's sake. She didn't get up and hit someone. She didn't say go out and kill somebody. She just tore a picture up. You know, suppose you were having a huge row with you, with you two, you know, this huge row. <laughs> You can lift your fists up. Instead of lifting your fists up, you say, I get a picture of Greg. I'm going to tear your picture up. They say, what a, what a bunch of pussies you are, you know? I think I've got a I picture just... right here. I might do one. <laughs> Uh-oh. Sorry about that. Hey, a, picture, a picture of me from the 80s. <laughs> by the way, by the way, our Canadian listeners are going to absolutely appreciate you dropping the Rufus reference there so oh yeah. well what a wonderful man i interviewed him <laughs> i interviewed him for that film in in belfast yeah. and um part of interviewing him he said i've come to the show tonight and i actually thought i said what do you do he said i did two hours and i just sit at the piano and play a bit of acoustic guitar is there a band he said no i don't have a not bothering with the band and i actually thought before i went in two hours of a singer just sitting here in a huge you know four thousand seater hall with a piano and a guitar i'm going to be bored yeah. God, it was the most riveting show. If it had gone on two more hours, it would have been not long enough. Yeah. It was fantastic. It was He had such a compelling way of projecting his songs. And by not having the band, you really listened to the lyrics. And every yeah. lyric, every word was worth listening to. Extraordinary songwriter. Mm. Yeah, the, fan, the family is very talented. Yeah, for sure. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, our guest has been Simon Napier-Bell. The documentary is George Michael, the real George Michael portrait of an artist. Simon, thank you so much for your time. This has been really yes, great. Yes, thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Bye.